Welcome to The Whole Marketer, where we look at the holistic skills, the technical skills, soft skills, leadership skills, and personal understanding that marketers of today need to grow the brands and businesses of tomorrow. We're here to ensure that marketers feel supported and empowered to have successful and fulfilling careers and lives as a whole. Hello, and welcome to The Whole Marketer podcast. Today's podcast is a technical skill. It's business to business customer journeys. And shortly, we will welcome today's guest, Antonia Wade, onto the podcast, where we will talk about all things business to business customer journeys and her new book, Transforming the Business to Business Buyer Journey to Maximize Brand Value, Improve Conversion Rates, and Build Loyalty. I felt it important for us to not only have an episode that talks about business to business customer journeys, as we so often focus on consumer journeys, but also in light of the changes that we are seeing around customers' wants, the speed in which they move through that journey and how they interact with us and how all of those things are changed, moving from a linear journey to one that is much more complicated and multifaceted. Today's guest is Antonia Wade. She's the global CMO of PwC leading brand strategy for one of the world's most trusted companies, creating flagship campaigns and running the marketing technology stack. She was previously CMO at Capita and has led global marketing teams at Thomas Reuters and Accenture. She's been ranked by Marketing Week as a top 100 marketer. Antonia, welcome to the Whole Marketer podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So as always, we start with a big juicy question. And today's big juicy question is, what is the B2B buyer journey to you? Great question. And it's interesting because I almost want to start with what it isn't before I start on what it is. Because for a long time in B2B marketing, we have employed the funnel, right? And everyone knows about the marketing funnel, which kind of assumes a sort of logical set of decisions being made probably by a single individual with the aim being to collect as much interest as you can and to push it firmly into sales in a reasonably prescribed, time-bound and preferable cheapest possible way. And yet anyone who's worked in B2B, particularly when you work for a company that sells complex services, where there are multiple people involved in the decision, actually the B2B buyer journey is a whole sequence of buyers trying to educate themselves about what's happening in the market, what they need to do about it, the information they need to build business cases, information that they need from suppliers in order to get the right shortlist and engagement with those suppliers so that they can work through who has both the right experience, but also the right kind of chemistry to get the job done. And then for many companies, as I said, particularly those that sell complex services and solutions, it's then the start of a multi-year relationship, which also needs constant engagement, maintenance, and some element of marketing surprise, a bit like all of the best long-term relationships. So the B2B buyer journey really is a series of conversations that meet the buyer where they are. And somewhat frustratingly, for those traditionalists who like the funnel, the buyers are not as predictable as we would hope. And also they're not all going through that journey at the same rate, even if they're forming a buying group and buying the same thing. So I would think about it as an information exchange and you have to meet the buyer where they are, even if it's not where your organization would want them to be in terms of a quarterly sales target. That point around information exchange feels like actually there's a whole different insight need that's needed here to be able to understand what they need at each of those stages. Is that fair to say? 
Exactly right. And you see a lot of traditional B2B organizations focusing more towards, I would say, the sales enablement end. And yet there's an awful lot of data out there that says, for example, there's a piece of Forrester data. It's a bit dated now, so it's probably even more that 57% of the decision is made before they speak to sales. There's actually quite a recent piece of data that's come out from the LinkedIn B2B Institute that says that if you weren't in the buyer's mind at the point at which you went into market to select somebody, you haven't got a hope. Basically, they, they're 80% likely to choose somebody who came to them at the point at which they decided they wanted to buy something. And what we find and what lots of people who markets technology and professional services solutions is actually the buyers are educating themselves a long time before they decide that they actually want to do anything at all. So I call in my book, The Horizon Scanners, And these are people who are looking out into the world at large and thinking about what are the market trends that will shift the opportunities and threats to my business. And at that point, they're not even thinking about buying anything at all. They're shaping strategy. And again, as a marketing organization, you have a chance to be involved in that strategic opinion forming stage well before you've even got into the buying process. So yeah, it's a different way of thinking about the buyer. It's also a different way of listening to the buyer's signals. And so whether you're getting digital signals or you're getting clues from how they're engaging with humans in your organization, you have to listen for something different, not just a buying signal. So tell us more about that thinking and listening. Yeah. So in the book, I talk about the different phases that buyers go through. So I categorize as horizon scanners, those that I've just talked about that are looking at longer term trends, not necessarily in the market to buy anything at all. They then start to formulate problem or an opportunity statement at a high level and test it. I call those explorers. So they're sort of seeking ideas and opinions. They sort of think that they might want to do something, but they're not sure yet. And they're building early and initial business cases. They then, once they've moved into space, where internally they have secured funding to look at a business case. They're then in the market looking to understand what have others done who've had similar problems or opportunities. I call them hunters. Once they've down-selected a group and decided that they're actually going to do something and formulated their business case, their problem statement, and they're actually looking for suppliers who will help them, they're in an active buying phase. And then once they've bought something from a supplier, particularly if you're in a B2B organization that has a broad suite of services that you offer to the market, market, you either want to be building loyalty or you want to be expanding share of wallet and offering more value to the clients that you have. So each one of those phases, and I talk about there's different content and channel and metrics that you would use in each part of that buyer journey. But there are also ways in which you can look for clues that somebody is moving from one part of the buying journey to another. So I'll give you an example. If somebody's moving, you can see through your digital assets that somebody is moving from something that's quite sort of thought leadership led, high level and speculative into case studies. They're probably starting to formulate and move from a kind of explorer to a hunter. If somebody has been at an event that is quite specific around, for example, what should banks do about AI? And then they start to engage with your humans or look through your digital channels at specific offers that you have, they're definitely moving from a kind of explorer to hunter, potentially even from a hunter to an active buyer. So you're really looking at where people are moving from one set of content and channels to another, because it indicates that they're on the move. And that gives you an opportunity to change the type of conversation and the type of content that you're putting in front of them. 
So for those listening, the book we're referring to is Antonia Wade's book, which is the B2B buyer journey to maximise brand value, improve conversion rates and build loyalty. And you've just taken us through those five phases of the journey. Tell us how that came about, how you kind of sat there and had your Jerry Maguire moment about what you are seeing happen in the B2B journey to map those five distinguished stages, if you will. Thank you. I don't know if it was a Jerry Maguire moment. I think it was a Jerry Maguire decade or so in <laughs> marketing. And look, you know, B2B marketing has changed beyond recognition from when I started my career, where it was, you know, really about supporting sales, lots of brochure wear. But with the rise of digital channel, with the blending of B2C and B2B, with an appreciation, that particularly with complicated services, you have buying groups, all of whom who are kind of playing several different roles. So for example, you know, we see in professional services between 12 and 15 people involved in every decision. And they're also making decisions based on being representatives of their company, representatives of that buying group, and as human beings and individuals with their own kind of content and channel preferences. So it struck me that old fashioned sort of quite linear sales funnel way of looking at the world was probably not that helpful and that marketers were missing out on a lot of opportunities to be engaging clients way, way earlier on, as I talked about in that horizon scanner and explorer space. And that also there was opportunity if you look in a lot of particularly more traditional B2B companies, although it's actually true of some of the newer, bigger software firms as well. There's a piece of data that I cite in the book about 80% of most B2B companies revenue sits in 20% of their clients. So marketing into that client group in order to drive growth and show value is probably a sensible thing to do as well. But with this sort of very funnel way of looking at the world, it was quite difficult to have conversations with CFOs and sales leaders and others about where a marketing dollar could add most value depending on the business strategy. And in fact, actually, for some organizations, the marketing dollar is better off spent creating future pipeline rather than helping with the sales enablement today. With other companies, the dollar might be better off spent driving loyalty and share of wallet within existing customers rather than trying to find lots of new lower value customers. Or it might be that you're in a company where you're in a sort of more precarious position with a shrinking economy and you do want to divert those marketing resources into making sure that you move things into the sales process faster, you unblock stock pipeline and you try and achieve as much revenue through that pipeline conversion as you can. But the point is, there's a choice to be made there unless you're in a very wealthy company that can afford to do it all. And without the right kind of framework and model, it's very difficult for marketers to have that conversation. And I felt that as I was having discussions with boards about what it was that we were trying to do in marketing, I needed something more helpful and more aligned to the way in which the buyer thinks about the world rather than the way that organizations want to sell into the world. So there's definitely something there around maximizing investment by making clear choices. Definitely something there around reflecting the changing landscape, but also connecting more to those buyers as human beings through their behaviour. Yeah. And I would say that, of course, you don't want to have reams and reams of metrics when you talk to the board, but you do also want to be able to manage a high performing marketing function. And what I found with some of the metrics from previous jobs that I've been in, they've been quite confusing because they've been very volume based. And I guess that mindset's been inherited necessarily from B2C, which often is quite particularly in FMCG is about volume and all volumes good. Whereas that's not actually true 
true in B2B and can be a bit misleading. Let me give you an example. If you say to me, okay, well, I've run a great campaign and we got 70,000 hits on the website. You know, it sort of depends on whether that's good. Because if your target addressable market was 75,000, that's amazing. If your target addressable market was 7 million, it feels pretty low. If your target audience was 70, which it could be in very complicated arrangements, then it feels like you might have overspent on paid media in order to target those 70 individuals. So the other reason I wanted to put together this framework was to help marketers to think about within each of those phases, you have a different target addressable market and the size of that addressable market changes. So when you go to your executives and you say, okay, well, who buys these services? And they say, everyone in the C-suite, that's actually A, not very helpful and B, probably not true when it actually comes to the purchase itself. So getting a bit more precise about how many people do you feel like sit in this part of the buyer journey and what types of job titles are we talking about? What kind of messages will resonate with them? What type of channels should we be using? How should we think about content in that will help you make more precise investments and to know where you're making trade-offs also help you do more test and learn, which is a good thing too. It very much helps with a better feedback loop with sales as well, because you're all testing and learning into buyer profiles as opposed to sales targets. And again, it helps you to have a more organized conversation with the business about what is the objective that you're trying to achieve from a commercial perspective over what time frame, and what do you want your marketing to do and what are the trade-offs you're making. So definitely on the return on investment. And I also think it does help you to hold the organization to account. So I've had conversations in the past with sales leaders, for example, who'll say, a combination of where are my leads? And of course, we're not well known enough in this space to be able to drive the types of conversations that we would want. And it's like, those are both valid things to ask marketing to help you with, but they're actually not the same. And so being able to be quite precise about that will then also help you to figure out how do you get the right balance of funds into each part of the buyer journey? And that will help your business for long-term as well as kind of short-term growth. So for a marketer that's sat listening going, yes, that is completely me constantly being asked for more leads, constantly being asked for more profile work or attendance at other events that other industry bodies are at or, you know, these kind of reactive ad hoc requests. And those are sitting there thinking, yes, I want to sit here and map what my business to business journey is against each of these phases, you know, with those job titles, with those people and those messages that will resonate what would be your advice next to kind of changing that way of thinking internally? Because I imagine that's a big part of bringing this to life. Yeah. So I guess the first thing is you have to construct your version of the buyer journey. So of course, I've given an example and a model, which I hope is helpful for people, but you obviously need to tailor and adapt it to your own business. And you can get a lot of insights from talking to clients, talking to analysts, talking to your sales organization, talking to your account teams or product teams to try and start to define a model like that, that kind of works for you and make sure that you ask good questions about how people are moving through, who's involved at each stage, what kind of things they like and don't like. So to do research, get those insights. It's it's not as hard as you might think to start to size up the addressable market as well. So that, that would be the first thing to do is to, to build your own version of it. And I've put some templates in the back of the book, define who's in it and start to sort of quantify how many people are in the market. The second thing that I would recommend is to look at the journey and decide how do you share it with sales? Because what I talk about in the book is that there's no part of that journey that's 0% marketing and 100% sales or 100% marketing and 0% sales. One of the most successful roles that I did, sales leader and I basically shared 
the journey together and actually worked out where was marketing going to give forgiveness on sales commission for the sales organization to be helping with some of that horizon scanning explorer type activity where the conversion was obviously going to be over multiple years. And then my team and I took sales targets so that we were also on the hook for helping to drive some of that more active buyer and conversion into loyalty. And so I think being thoughtful about how do you divvy it up and share it in terms of the types of insights and activities that each team can be doing. But also, if you can get that far, how do you reward and recognize each other and see it as a shared endeavor in service of the buyer? So that's a helpful way of thinking about it as well. I offer in the book some interviews that I've done with other leaders. And there's a good one that I did with the UK CMO of Salesforce. And she talks a lot about shared accountability with sales and making sure that you really start to feel like one team rather than two teams and give some advice about how to do that. I have to say, I do end the book with a reasonably provocative statement. So I start it with the provocation that the funnel is kind of dead. And I finish it with a provocation that says that this most successful companies of the future, in my opinion will be those where the expectation of the experience of the client will be set by marketing and everything else will service that, including sales as well as service and product. So I do think that if you look at the best performing B2C companies, you start to see them moving in that direction. And I've got to think that if you're in an environment where your buyers are spending millions of dollars with you, that's probably where the the smart money would be. And it's almost adopting some of that customer need at the forefront principles that B2C have, or still on a journey (laughs) to happen, but is very much for me, particularly where I want marketing to be. The other thing is that, you know, not everyone moves through this buyer journey. It's not the same people. So you see companies delegating down to different people in the organization. You see procurement, sometimes a tech exec, sometimes finance coming in, in the middle of the journey, and they have different informational requirements. So really thinking about who is involved in this decision at each different phase of what the buyer is trying to do, and what are their informational needs, and not assume that they're homogenous group, I think will really help you to set yourself apart from your competition. And of course, in all of this, you're in a highly competitive environment. And so the better you can make a client feel about the fact that you understand their needs, a lot of it is about relationships, which you can really support a lot through marketing by being highly empathetic and highly reactive to what the buyers are indicating to you through all of the channels that you execute in, I think really helps you to stand out and really drives the difference. I couldn't agree more. And that's great advice, both on mapping your own journey, but also the way in which you can build those relationships and have that level of connectivity across the organisation as well as with sales. Exactly. There's, for too long, there's been this sort of unhelpful divide between marketing and sales. And we've all seen it, right? Where marketing are like, well, we offer loads of leads. We organize all these great events and opportunities and sales sort of don't show up into that, don't follow it up. And then on the sales side, you have the sales organization being frustrated because the quality of the leads and potentially the volume isn't where they want it to be. And actually, there can be a lot of time, energy put into that quite negative conversation, as opposed to saying, right, we have a shared objective here. It might look and feel different from metrics and targets against the whole journey, but we all have shared metrics across the whole journey. And so let's come together in the spirit of doing that differently, rather than almost pitting two parts of the organization that really ought to be absolutely in lockstep with one another. And sales will provide incredible insights into marketing, really rich, really interesting, incredible insights, which you might not always agree with, but they'll be really, really good. And so 
resetting that relationship, what I would say to any board member who sees this tension and friction between sales and marketing, I would take that very, very seriously and try and step in to remediate that as soon as possible, because that's just a wasted client experience. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more, you know, embracing that level of insight and interaction that the sales force do have directly with the customer into that wider customer insight and journey is really key. And it goes the other way around. So I remember in one role that I did, there was a piece of regulation coming in. We were doing a lot of work with financial services companies and we were hosting these events. And, you know, my team, who are all of these all over Europe, we're like, well, we keep hearing the same question come up over and over again about how ready is ready enough, given that this regulation is two years away. And the regulators don't feel like it's really their place to advise on that. And yet it seems to be a constant question that keeps coming up. And we took that as an insight to the sales team and then co-created a really exceptional digital diagnostic to help people to work out whether they were ready enough for this complicated piece of regulation that was coming in. The sales team's got amazing amazing leads that were very rich in information because people had given a lot of information in order to get the diagnostic. And our buyers were so happy. And I remember one of them saying to my boss at the time, who was the head of Europe, this is one of the most helpful things that any organization's given us about this regulation. And so being helpful thinking about the real need. And that came from marketing, listening to the recurring questions and events. So I think those insights can come from anywhere. And then you kind of need spotters kind of across marketing and sales who then can spot these great ideas and turn them into something that adds a lot of insight, a lot of richness, is valuable to the buyer, but also really helps to drive a very well-informed lead for sales rather than a name with a job title. can agree more. And what's clear as I'm listening to you is the level of passion you have about not only this, but just the change that needs to happen and helping others deliver that change within organisations. It takes a lot of time and energy to write a book, particularly when, like yourself, you're in role doing all of this, (laughs) driving all of this change. I'm fascinated to know what drove you to write the book and dedicate that level of time. Well, I have to say on a a very tactical level, actually, I changed jobs and I had three months off in between. And my husband was like, please don't sit around the house with nothing to do because you're (laughs) going to drive me absolutely insane. So I was like, "Okay, noted. And a friend of mine had been on this program, great program called the book Midwife, where you go from nothing to a book in three months. So I was like, perfect. That will fill my three months and will get me out of my husband's hair and stop me starting an insane DIY project that I never finish. But on a more emotional side, I felt like talking to lots of B2B marketers, particularly mid-career, who are really struggling, who could see the value that marketing could add, but were struggling with how to articulate what they were doing, how to prioritize effectively, how to step up into a different type of commercial conversation. And I felt as though I'd learned a lot over the last 20 years of being in marketing. It was a good opportunity to write it down and give something that I hope helps others. And honestly, even if somebody just takes away one or two ideas and it's helpful for them, then the book's done its job. That was kind of the intention behind it. Of course, I didn't finish it in three months. And so I did then have to finish it whilst I started this amazing, busy, an exciting role in PwC. So there were quite a lot of weekends, you know, half day holidays and airports journey taken to finish it. But once I'd started getting my ideas down on paper, I felt so passionately that I wanted to see it through. And so, yeah, I guess there's a, a level of tenacity in me that wanted to get it done. 
I love that. And thank you for that commitment, especially when in role. I have visions of you now sat in an airport lounge, kind of with a coffee and a sandwich going, I've got two hours before the flight. Let me just edit it. 2,000 words. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I must meet the word count. I must get that conversation down. And you've mentioned that 20 years of wealth of experience. I'd love to hear your career highs and lows. Oh, well, very, very many highs. I think that I've been lucky to work in organizations that have always either really believed in the power of marketing and brand and really got behind the potential of it, or I've worked in organizations where they really needed marketing a lot. And so I was able to be very experimental and drive change really fast. So, you know, I feel lucky for the organizations and the people and the mentors that I've had. I've also been able to work with some incredible marketers, both within my teams and more broadly. So there's lots of highlights within that. If I point to a few, I mean, working somewhere like Accenture, where I was really helping to shape and articulate the client experience as they were really building out their operations offering, which involved both internal comms and client comms across a very diverse global delivery network, offering a whole range of technology, outsourcing process services. That was just a really wonderful experience and being part of Accenture's journey to being the enormous powerhouse that they are today. Thomson Reuters really helped me to sharpen my commercial acumen and we were able to do real dollar attribution. So I knew exactly for every dollar we spent, how much we would get in return, how we should think about the long and short term investment. And actually, by the time I was leaving there, we were in a place where we were looking at return on investment on content as well as on campaigns, which is very interesting. In Capita, much shorter time there, but there was a bit of a burning platform. So we did a major brand refresh, which I feel very proud about, and a big technology transfer particularly into the dot-com. Uh, we did that at Thomson Reuters as well. I enjoyed in both of those roles, bringing technology and creativity together and really driving transformational change. And now as I come to PwC, you know, I work for one of the best and most trusted brands in the world. Again, we have a big technology change agenda, as well as a campaign and content program where we're helping to talk to clients about some of the world's biggest issues around climate, AI and other things. But one of the things I'm really proud of doing here is building a marketing academy to help to upskill and drive the skills of the thousands of people that we have around the world in PwC doing marketing and sales enablement. And that just feels really good to be able to build those skills, to give something back to that community. And it's been such an engaged and spirited group who've been both leading it and taking part of it. So that's been a real personal joy for me over the last couple of years. That's amazing. I love that. And Lowe's? I think that whenever you're working in an economically challenged or constrained environment, often you have to make adjustments to your plans and strategy, to your ambition, but also to the teams and the structures around you. And anything like that that you have to do that really impacts people's lives and careers never feels great, although it's usually very necessary for the broader business survival. I always find that really, really challenging. I think I've done a number of transformational roles and it can be wearing at a certain point where you're really trying to drive change and you feel like you are making improvements and impact, but it's slower than you want it to. And that can just be, I find on a personal level, I have to dig deep for the resilience there to keep going, to keep giving the right advice, to keep kind of going down the path, even if you have a lot of, as you mentioned before, a lot of short-term tactics things thrown at you that knocks the team off course. 
But I do try and think of myself as somebody who learns from the lows as well as the highs. Mm. I try and build something in me and the team every time I've learned something about why something didn't work. I'm a big fan of the phrase course correct. Like we go again, but we try and do something different. And also, I think you have to appreciate that sometimes you have a phenomenal idea, but it's just not its moment. And you just have to be able to be compassionate and fair to yourself and your team about that. but not stop that from making you continue to give your best ideas and your best thinking. So of course, there's lows. Can't be in a business environment for as long as I've been without there being some. Often those are kind of market related, i.e. around having to change strategy and people. Sometimes they're about your own internal resilience. And I'm always wonder whether I could have done it better or could I have presented it better but you know that's where you have to surround yourself with people and mentors who hold the mirror up and sometimes you could have done a better job and sometimes honestly you couldn't because it wasn't the moment and you did the best job that you could with within the circumstances that you were operating in so I guess I would say that you have to be fair and kind to yourself even through the lows and just know that everyone has bad days as well as good days that's so true. And I always say it's never in the learning, it's always in the reflection of the learning as well. You know, as you just said, what could I do better so that you can take that forward and move forward? Exactly. It feels unfair for me to ask the final question that we always ask because you've just given so much advice to all of our listeners. But I'm going to ask it anyways, Antonia. What one piece of advice would you give to marketers of tomorrow? So my temptation is to give you five or six answers, but I'm going to try and group it together into one, which is to know and protect the value that you can create as a marketer in your organization. Let me dissect that a little bit. Knowing your value means really understanding how the business makes money, how they fund marketing, what the expectations are, and being very clear about that. That goes a bit back to what I was just talking about in terms of mapping out the journey and being very clear about where is it that marketing can really add the most value and what are some of the choices and trade-offs you're making. Know your value as somebody who has likely a creative way of approaching problems as well as a practical way of approaching problems. And I think there's something in the discipline of marketing and the people who are attracted into marketing that makes you see the world and problems in a different way. And so hold on to that and don't let organizational process mechanics kind of like wear that out of you. And also know your value in being able to listen to clients very effectively and honestly with the new ways in which people choose to consume information as marketers you're sitting on the greatest insights that you could have about the market and your clients and so feel confident about that because very often I find B2B marketers to not be that very confident even though you're sitting on a wealth of data you have a unique perspective and way of seeing things and you probably do hold the key to the long-term growth of your business and yet I sometimes, you know, you have that thing of like it's a pussycat mewing rather than a lion roaring. So I would encourage you to yeah, know and understand the value that you create for the organization and act with the swagger and the confidence that you deserve. I love that. The swagger and the confidence. And thank you again so much for your time on today's podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I've really, really enjoyed the discussion. And, you know, best of luck to all of my B2B colleagues. It's a wonderful, fascinating, frustrating world to be in. It's certainly, you know, with to go back to your highs and those questions, the highs are very high. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Whole Marketer podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do like, follow and share. 
The whole marketer is here to support and empower you and your teams with the latest technical skills, soft and leadership skills and behaviours and personal understanding for a successful, fulfilling marketing career and life as a whole. For support, resources and more information on how we can help you to become a whole marketer and build whole marketing teams, go to www.thewholemarketer.com.